Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word to us this morning. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are companion psalms. They go together. Both of them are, first of all, acrostic poems. And an acrostic poem uh, is one that sometimes uh, starts with a letter of a word. Each line starts with a letter of the word. I think of the, the Mother's Day poem, M is for the, in many ways, you know, and O is for, and you spells out mother. Uh, this is kind of like that, not so trite maybe, uh, no offense to the moms in the room, but both of these, uh, in the Hebrew at least, both Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 have 22 lines corresponding uh, with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's kind of a teaching tool there. Uh, one commentator says that these form a diptych, and a diptych is one of those paintings that are done on panels that have a hinge in the middle, and uh, you know, they both treat the same subject matter, maybe in a little different way. And that's true of these two psalm, uh, psalms, Psalm 111, gives us a portrait of the Lord. We read it for our call to worship, and it talked about the greatness of God. And then Psalm 112 is a portrait of a believer, the person who fears the Lord and the blessedness of being one of those people. So there are two sides of, of a picture of God and his people. And also we see that they're companion psalms because Psalm 112 develops the theme of the last verse of Psalm 111. If you look at verse 10 uh, of Psalm 111, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Now this last reason is the one that is of interest to us because we're looking at the blessed person in the Psalms. And Psalm 112 tells us building on that last verse of Psalm 111, that the one who fears the Lord is blessed, he is happy, she is flourishing in her life. Now what does it mean to fear the Lord? Now Psalm 111 and you look at Proverbs 1, look at Proverbs 9 and uh, other places in the Psalms as well, they tell us again and again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want to be wise. I can't say that I'm the wisest person in the world. And if we assess ourselves and think, you know, how can I be a wiser person? Well, here's the beginning point. 
Here's the starting point, and that's before us today. The beginning point of wisdom, the very first step in getting wisdom, is to fear the Lord. It's wise to fear the Lord, and it's the beginning of wisdom. And it leads, Psalm 112 tells us, to a blessed life. So the fear of the Lord is important, and I think it's something that has been lost in our day. The fear of the Lord is something that's lost. We don't talk about it. We're more apt to talk about our big buddy upstairs, or God's my co-pilot, or something irreverent like that. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? That's what we want to think about this morning. Now, let's just define it. What does it mean to fear the Lord? If you've been in church for any amount of time, surely you have heard that we're not talking about cowering fear here when we're talking about fearing the Lord. But when the Bible talks about fearing God, it's talking about a profound reverence for the Lord. That's, that is, we are to revere God. We are to stand in awe of Him. And that's easier said than done. We can't see God, and sometimes, frankly, God seems distant. But we must understand that there is a vast difference between ourselves and God. And properly recognizing this fact and recognizing the distance between us and God should lead us to fear the Lord, to have uh, an awe, to be awestruck and reverent as we appear before the Lord, as we think about the Lord. Now, as I contemplated this idea of what it means to fear the Lord and God's greatness, it, it took me back and just what popped into my head was that prayer that we used to say as children before uh, mealtime. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Thank you for our daily bread. God is great and God is good. And that's what I want to think about for a minute, the greatness of God. And you see, that's what we've been singing about all morning, the greatness of God. How great is our God? I want, I want that to be communicated to you today. Because I think the only response that we can have if we contemplate God's greatness and his goodness is to fear the Lord. Now, how great is God? Uh, we, we overuse that word great in our daily conversations. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great. How was the food? Oh, it was great. We went to the movies the other night. It was great. You know, if everything is great, the weather yesterday, that was great. If everything is great, then nothing's great, right? I mean, if we describe everything as being great, then it really takes away from things that are truly great. And then, you know, the, the meal you cook may be fantastic. The food we will eat in a few moments is probably going to be wonderful and we'll enjoy it. And we'll describe it, this is great stuff. But God is the only one who is truly great. And of course that's the word that's used throughout scripture. We, we, uh, we cheapen it when we throw it around so easily. But God is great. If we look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, question four, it has a, a wonderful definition of God. What is God? The answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and, un, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now that's kind of a technical theological definition, but when we think about God, 
What it says here, God is a spirit. He's infinite. He's boundless. He's, he's unlimited. There's nothing that limits God in any way. His, his being, his person is without limit. His wisdom is boundless. His power, he is omnipotent. He has all power at his disposal. And he's eternal. He exists forever. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. He is. When we talk about God's holy name, Yahweh, it means I am that I am. He exists forever. He is. So God has power. God has wisdom. God is eternal. God is infinite. And he is this way forever. And he is great. There's really no words to do justice to the greatness of God. He is great. And we are small compared to God. God is also good. It talks about in the catechism his holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These things are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. You think about that. His, his holiness is without limit. And that word holy uh, means without compare. It's a cut above. It's, it's superior in every way. There's moral purity involved in that. God is completely pure and perfect in every way. And, and there is no limit to that perfection. But it goes beyond just moral purity. It involves everything that God is. He is superior in every phase of his being to anything else. This is God we're talking about. And he's just. He's right. God is always right. He's never wrong. Ever. And he's good. His goodness is beyond limit. And truth. He defines what truth is. This is the great God that we're talking about here. This is the God that we are to fear, especially as we contemplate His greatness and His goodness compared to our own. Now, you all might be great people, good people, uh, compared to one another. You know, you, there are human beings who stand out. Some are better than others. I hate to say that, you know. I don't want to point any fingers, but some are better than others. Some are greater than others. But to compare to God, there's no human being that is great. We are small, weak, limited. We're finite. We're not eternal. Our life is really fragile. We're but a breath, the scripture says. When you uh, read the newspaper and you see the daily, the tragedies that, that people uh, encounter in life, Often young people or children who die, you see the, the fragility of life. The strongest person in the world will die. So compared to God, we're, we're, but, a drip, we're but a breath. God is eternal. Psalm 39 has this as its prayer. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. 
Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So we are not great as God, and nor are we good. You know, we might compare ourselves to our neighbor and think, well, I'm a pretty good person, but compared to God, who is superior in every way, holy in every way, well, we're not righteous. As Paul picks up his pen in Romans, quoting the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are not good compared to God. We are not great compared to God. God is perfection in those things. And there is never a reason for us, as the mere creatures that we are, to treat the Lord with irreverence. And there is always a reason to be in awe of God. Now there's something to note about the word fear here in Hebrew. There's uh, several synonyms that, that you have for fear in the Hebrew language. This is probably the most common word for fear. And of course when we're talking about th this word being used in reference to God, we know that he's talking about reverential awe because of God's greatness and his glory. But this word is also the word you would use when you're afraid of something. When, when something is frightening, this is the word that you use to describe it. For example, in Judges, Joshua and Judges, when uh, they're going out to war, God tells them, look, if someone is afraid, if someone fears, this is the same word that's used in Psalm 112, then you tell them to go home. If they're frightened of the battle, if they're frightened of death, if this scares them to death, send them home. And that's repeated in several places in Scripture. So this word can mean being frightened or being afraid. And it's appropriate to think of that, not divorce completely from that meaning when we're talking about it in reference to God, to divorce that meaning of being frightened and afraid of God, there's a sense in which we should be afraid of God. James Montgomery Boyce says this, We should not dismiss the idea of fear too easily, for in many respects God is truly terrifying. God is holy, majestic, forceful, and frighteningly opposed to everything that is unholy or would seek to diminish His glory. We cannot take God lightly. God cannot be inconsequential to us or weightless in our thinking or acting. The person who is blessed, according to the psalm here, is, first of all, the person who takes God seriously. Indeed, 
he or she takes him with full seriousness as the starting point of everything, the critical factor in every calculation and the end to which everything is moving and to whom are all accountable. That's a great statement on what it means to fear God and how we relate to him. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, What he's saying here is to fear the Lord is to relate to him appropriately based on his greatness and goodness. What is God like? He's vastly superior to us. How should we relate to him? You think about it uh, as the earth is to the sun. the, The earth revolves around the sun. And and the earth is placed at a certain distance from the sun that is not too close and not too far away where the earth flourishes. The earth has life. It sustains life. If we were just a little bit further away or further closer, we would either burn up or freeze to death. In fact, where our solar system is placed in our galaxy is the only place that could actually sustain life. It is truly amazing when you think about God speaking all this into existence and putting us in the very one spot in the universe where life can be sustained. He is great. But our earth revolves around the sun, and as long as it is in that proper relationship to the sun, it flourishes. It has life. And that's the same is true of us. What does your life revolve around? What is at the center? What are you moving around? What dictates your life? Is it your family? Is it your work? Is it accumulating money? Is it creature comforts? Is it pleasures, some pleasure? When you think about your day, what drives it? What dictates what you do with your time and money and energy? That is your son that you're revolving around, whatever the answer to that question is. Whatever is at the center of your life. That's what we're talking about here. What it means to fear the Lord is that God is there. You recognize that he is supposed to be the center because he's so great and so superior. And you're supposed to revolve around him. Your entire life needs to be dictated by him. And you're taking that seriously. He is the critical factor in every calculation, the end to which everything is moving and to whom we are all accountable. See, That is not taking God lightly when he is the center of our universe. That's taking him seriously, and that's what it means to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that constant thought that your life is on display before this God of the universe, and it is. The Bible repeatedly tells us, why do the wicked think that God doesn't see? He sees everything. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The fear of the Lord is the constant thought that your life is on display before the God of the universe, mixed with the knowledge that we will have to give an account before this God. For every one of our deeds, for every one of our words, for every one of our thoughts, and even the intentions of our hearts. And we must not only answer for what we have done, but we also must answer for what we have left undone. Now, friends, that should terrify us. 
That is a terrifying thought, if you really think about it. But the wonderful thing about our God, and what makes Him even greater, is He does not leave us cowering in fear. He doesn't leave us in this place where we recognize that we will never measure up, that we've already blown it. But He has made a way for us to properly relate to Him as His dearly loved children. Jesus Christ is that one who has come to earth to lay down his life for sinners such as we are, people who don't have any fear of the Lord before our eyes. And I was reading in my, uh, my daily uh, reading plan through the Bible this week. First Thessalonians was part of what uh, I was uh, assigned to read. And there in the, the end of 1 Thessalonians 1, the very last, well, verse 10, it, it talks about Jesus, and it, and it describes Jesus in this way. He is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We don't have to be terrified of this great God. We can come close to him and be received as his children because of what Christ has done for us. He has delivered us from the wrath to come by taking the wrath that we deserve upon himself at the cross. He bore it there. He was crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turned his favor away from God, uh, from Jesus, and poured out his punishing wrath because Jesus took our sins upon himself and he paid for them there so that we can be in a right relationship with God, so that we can fear the Lord with a healthy reverential awe. And as it says in the second part of the verse, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. See, you can set out today and say, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to try to please the Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to fear God because I know I've got to give an account to Him. I'm going to try my best to do everything that He requires. Well, you won't get very far. You'll fall short. You won't be able to complete that task because you're a sinner at heart. And your fear of the Lord will, will not be a, a true heart change. That's what we need. Isaiah was given a message for the people of God in his day. From Isaiah 29, it says that the Lord said, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. See, it, it's not just something that we can intellectually get our heads around. We need a heart change. We need to be transformed. We need to be new creations in Christ, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When we're new creations, the Lord writes his law upon our hearts. He, he changes us, us from the inside out, and we become those people who fear the Lord and who greatly delight in his commandments. We're no longer serving the Lord as slaves with servile fear, 
We're serving him with delight and joy, knowing that he has our best interest at heart, knowing that he has great love for sinners such as we are. So the question for you today is, what's your life revolving? What's, what's your life revolving around? Is it the Lord? Well, he's made a way to properly re- relate to him through Christ. And if you have, uh, as we sometimes do, have your loves out of sort, uh, have your focus out of sort, today is the day to call upon him, to, to repent. Life, is a, life is a, for the Christian is a life of repentance and faith, to continue to turn away from our sin and turn back to the Lord and get in right relationship with him. And all those things that we often put in the center of our lives, like our families or our work, well, you see, I'm not going to cover it here today, but the rest of the psalm, verses 2 through 9, describe all the blessings that come to the person who fears the Lord. When you put the fear of the Lord first, then your family, verse 2, uh, is in good, good shape. Wealth and riches, it talks about. Uh, you're blessed with those things. Um, you have the truth. It doesn't mean that your life won't be without trouble because he talks about bad news uh, and it talks about uh, adversaries. That's going to happen, but you've got, you're trusting in the Lord. It's, it's going to be okay because you've got the Lord at the center of your life. So I ask you today, if you don't know this peace, this comfort, this joy, even in the midst of trial, recenter yourself on the Lord. Call upon him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. You don't treat us as our sins deserve. You're kind and you have provided a way for us through Christ. And and so, Lord, we, we call upon Jesus. We ask that you would forgive us and cleanse us, renew us. And, Lord, we pray that our lives, as the choir sang earlier, that those idols, those things that we put in the center, will be taken away and that they would be replaced by you our great and loving God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.